We had much to discuss today on the protest and the counter-protest. The One Million March for Children, which ended up at the Manitoba Legislative Building, opposes LGBTQ2 plus policies in schools, and there was a counter-protest. And one thing is clear after today's show, this is a divisive issue. COVID lockdowns became a surprise topic yesterday with leaders saying we're not going back to lockdowns. So we had a chat about that, also a divisive issue. And we had a lot of fun talking about cancellations. Have you ever been disappointed by a cancellation or perhaps caused that disappointment by being the cancelor? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, September 21st podcast for The Start. About 12 hours ago, we had a text from Greg asking, what is, what's this about? <laughs> it's a political ad, and like all ads, it's making a promise. Take a listen. The thing we all missed most dearly during COVID was family, being kept apart during good times and bad. But we learned a lot during these difficult days and know for sure that lockdowns are a thing of the past. As we turn the page, Let's get back to celebrating family, friends, and all that we love about the province we call home. Feels about, I don't know, a year later than than when that message might have been appropriate. But my, you know, radio-friendly reaction was, what on earth does this even mean, Loren? Okay, so that's the ad on lockdowns. It rolled out. I, I I hadn't heard it before, so you can correct me if I'm on, wrong, but yesterday morning, all three leaders spoke at a Winnipeg Chamber debate. The COVID lockdown question came up, and uh, Stephenson made a promise, but hey, before you react about that, so did uh, the leader of the NDP. Many of you are small business owners here today. The shutdown, those lockdowns really, really hurt Manitobans, and I can tell you that if we are back in government, we will not be locking down again. NDP leader Wab Canoe. No, no more lockdowns. But the way that you do that is by enhancing the capacity of the healthcare system. And you're not going to get that with the PCs. Liberal leader Dugold Lamont says he's concerned. To prevent a lockdown, you have to make sure that you're doing things to prevent that lockdown, and this government is doing nothing of that. So it just sounds like they are, if, there's an, if there's another outbreak of COVID, they're just going to let it rip. That was the explanation on the news uh, via Richard Cloutier yesterday at, the, at their Live on 5, kind of breaking down what each leader was saying. And I think the thing that I struggle with here is that, so Stephenson and the PCs are saying no more lockdowns. Canoe had the caveat, yeah, but that we, we, we say no more lockdowns, but we need to get our healthcare system up and running. And Lamont is basically, if I'm reading between the lines, they're saying that that's all irresponsible. We're nowhere near ready to say that. But I don't... That is such a huge promise to make. I don't know who would fall for it. You can't say you're not going to ever lock down again. We don't know what's coming. We, we didn't know a lockdown was a thing that we'd ever go through three years ago, right? Like yeah, that well, wasn't even, that wasn't even a word in my vocabulary for, for this nation. You know, other countries go through things that we hadn't. I, it's a promise. I, it's not a keepable one in my mind. Well, it's an interesting choice of language as well. Were we in lockdowns or were we in restrictions? We don't have to debate that. Uh, but the, the the word sort of catches my attention anyway. 
And this whole idea of declarative and absolute statements feels really super silly to me by anybody who's in power, anyone who's in leadership. Uh, Bill Gates once suggested we'd never need more than 64K of, of RAM on a computer. Well, okay, I've got about 20 times that in my pocket now. But anyway, uh, these things sometimes come back to haunt us. And I guess the big example I used with you guys was the Winnipeg floodway. When it was built, no one ever promised that Winnipeg would never flood again. But the impacts of a major flood were certainly minimized, and that was a promise that could be made. And if the floodway had been built in a fashion that would prevent a once in 700 year flood, guess what? In the 90s and the early 2000s, we wouldn't have had to expand the floodway. I guess it's my way of saying, uh, Brett, that these situations are always fluid, and these absolute statements just feel silly to me. Now, yesterday on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, they spoke with the province's top doctor, Brent Rusin. Here's what he has to say about COVID and future lockdowns and what his powers are in implementing restrictions. Yeah, so under the Public Health Act, you know, many of the the very coercive measures, you know, uh, uh, significant restrictions and things, they fall under uh, Section 67, the emergencies, uh, um, public health emergency area there. And most of them require, you know, assent of a of a minister to uh, uh, to be of effect. You know, they, you know, we dealt with this. It was a, an extreme time uh, and required very significant response. But uh, we, we, you know, we, we need to be able to move on from that. And, and we're not going to be using those measures, um, you know, except for in extreme circumstances. That sounds like a measured response to me. That sounds like something that I go, okay, yeah. It's not anything that they ever wanted to do in the first place. Dr. Rusin saying it would be a really extreme situation that they, that they would ever go down that road again. Unless you hear that differently, Brett, Loren? Well, it, my question, no, I, I think that what he's saying is that, yeah, they have to have a ministerial sign-off. They don't They don't take these things lightly. They Based on the past, you know, you might change the conversations you have in the future. But what I'm wondering is, out of these no more lockdown promises, is that just is that just pure politics that you're playing? You know, you're pandering to the idea of the voter who was upset during those times, which nobody liked the restrictions. But a lot of people even if you thought why we they were, were doing the right it. thing to do, right. sort even of interrupt. Said, even when I nobody liked them. Yes, even but, if you thought it was the right thing to do, you didn't like them. You hated them. So what? Why does this need to be said? What? Who are we pandering to? Is my question. Yeah, because be- I think we all agree. We don't we? Don't, nobody wants them. You can't. You can't tell me we might not see it again. Yeah, I've been. I've. I've been. I've overheard conversations in recent weeks from people who lean towards the right, who listen to some podcast out of the states, no less, saying, "Oh, well, COVID's coming. Trudeau's Trudeau's going to lock Canada down again." I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Um, so uh, the, the conversations are out there. So yeah, that's that. When I saw that ad, it almost felt like a response to people who are having these discussions. And and I, and I will admit, even when I saw the notice that Doctor Rusin was going to be speaking yesterday, there was a there was a moment where I was like, oh boy. What what what's he got for us? Um, but if you want to weigh in, two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. And our question of the day, by the way, at cjob.com for Mister Furness. Don't call them first; you'll see why. Call Mister Furness at two zero four eight three two sixty two forty three. Will you or your children get vaccinated for the flu? 
COVID-19 and or RSV. 30% say yes, all three. 37% say not all, but one or two vaccines. And 33% say not a single one. So you can cast your vote, cjob.com. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We have tickets to give away for Christmas with the tenors, and we invite you to join this discussion, this conversation at 204-780-6868, because, Loren, today we want to talk about cancellations. Yeah, and I have to say, in five years on this show, I, I maybe a handful, maybe. It's, it's so rare that you come in and someone calls and says, sorry, you know, I'm sick or my child's sick or we've got this, can't make it today, and so we'll just have to cancel. Uh, this morning we woke up to what we thought were two cancellations from a guest we were supposed to have in about 10 minutes' time, and then one at 8, and it turns out, I think, to be a time zone issue, but then we were going back and forth saying, is it the 807 or the 707? Who's not coming? What's going on? And... uh cancellations happen but they can really throw your day or your plans into a bit of a disarray and sometimes they can enrage you or you may be the one that upsets someone else when you decide that you have to cancel on them is there a reason that works for you is there a reason that doesn't work for you have you ever had someone cancel with something super lame where you thought that is ridiculous so this morning we want your cancellation stories 204-780-6868 mackling why don't you want to start us off no, because I'm still thinking of one. <laughs> All right. We have canceled Greg's comment for the moment. Poitras, what about you? Um, I've, you know, this is something I've, I've kind of had to learn and I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to get better at it. You know, and recently I've, I had something going on and I had to uh, move some stuff around and I was dealing with a bunch of other stuff and I had already previously scheduled things and I felt so incredibly guilty contacting those people and telling them, listen, I have this other thing going on in my life. That's, that's a lot more important. And I just can't deal with this right now. Like I just can't deal with this. And I'll, it took me like 12 hours to come to that conclusion because I just, I kept going back and forth in my head thinking like, Oh, I got to make it. I got, I got this time. I have this thing figured out. And I'm like, just contact the people, tell them what's going on. And then everybody understands the situation. So I don't know why with me, and and I think maybe a lot of other people as well, why I feel like I have to, despite, because I said I was going to do it, I have to go through it regardless of all these other circumstances. Yeah. Um, The double booking. The double, yeah. Well, or or something else comes up in your life, you know, and and, and just telling people I can't do it. I I, I get so guilty doing that. Yeah. I struggle with it, yeah. You are not alone. I remember talking, sorry, Brett, to Carolyn Clausen, oh, maybe a year ago about this, about how you feel that guilt to cancel. She's a counselor, and she was just saying she had an event to go to, and her, her husband said, you don't have to go, you know? And she's like, yes, I do. And he's like, why? You know, like sometimes you feel like you have to do things, and sometimes you do have a responsibility to go. And other times it's just like, why did I say yes to this in the first place? And so it's that idea, mm. sometimes do the cancel before the cancel, which is just say no. Nah, I'm not... I know I'm not going to be interested in that in a month time. I'm not coming. You just feel like people are counting on you and you're letting them down. I get it. The power of no is something that a lot of us need to learn. And I guess mine would be just a couple of weeks ago was the Tuesday after Labor Day. I was supposed to golf in a tournament with one of my best Mm. friends. And I came in and about five o'clock I started feeling unwell. And so I texted, I'm so sorry, man. I got to pull the plug today. Of course it was raining. It wasn't a very nice day. So I can imagine the back of his head. He's going, oh yeah, you just don't want to golf in the rain. So I ended up being sick. I ended up having strep throat. And not only did I cancel golf on Tuesday, 
I also had to cancel going to a golf tournament on Thursday. And I was supposed to golf with, well, I might as well say, I was supposed to golf with the mayor. And I had to pull the plug. (laughs) Really? Yes. And so, Vince, I know you're listening this morning. He'd arranged that. And I felt terrible. But, like, what are you going to do? I don't want to give the mayor strep throat. A bad sidebar about this job is if somebody hears you on the air and all of a sudden you cancel later today, they're like, wow, you were good enough to, you're you're good enough to work. <laughs> I heard you. you. sounded lively today. <laughs> uh, Sarah, what about you? Yeah, mine's a near miss. Like, could have been a cancellation, maybe preferred it to be a cancellation, but it was when um, the chicks had to move their concert. Of mm. course, um, that was extreme circumstances. They had stuff, personal stuff going on and had to get back home. Totally understand. It it just threw our plans like through a loop though because my mom had to get here like one day earlier from Dryden. My dad had to work the day of the concert. He was supposed to drive her. So just the whole plan unraveled but it ended up working out. So that was good. But just and sometimes good. it could be easier to cancel I guess some things than others but I'm I'm glad it happened. Mine happened uh, the one that I'm thinking of. Well one one's more recent. I recently ordered a sea, Winnipeg Sea Bears hat. It was teal color and uh, ordered it online, waited for about a week excitedly thinking, okay, it's, today's got to be the day. And then I got a, an email canceling my order and issuing a refund because they sold out. So mm. I was sad. But the, the the bigger one happened, I don't know how many years ago, seven, eight years ago, I had started dating this woman and we made plans to go see a movie on a Thursday evening. So I will preface this by saying this is 100% my fault. Because I should not have committed to a Thursday evening because that's when Jeff and I would tape the couch potatoes. So I knew that I would, I knew well ahead of time, I'm going to be tired by the time I'm done the couch potatoes. But for some reason I thought, ah, but I can, I can suck it up and go to this movie with this woman. And sure enough, by around 5 PM, as we were getting ready to record, I texted her to say, I'm sorry, I got to. We need to postpone. I'm just, I'm not going to be up for this tonight. And boy, oh boy, did I ignite a firestorm of rage. And look, she had every right to be mad because she said I had to rearrange some stuff to make this happen. And I was doing my hair and I already did my makeup and, and you, you, then you cancel. And when you want to get together next, I said, I'm available Monday. Oh, Monday. Well, you can't. What are you doing Friday, Saturday, Sunday? That's so important. <laughs> and then she starts texting me throughout the evening. She went out with a friend and got drunk. And oh, she was sending, no. she was <laughs> taking <laughs> selfies and saying, see, this is what a real friend looks like. Oh, oh. Red so you're, you're really tight red now, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say safe to say that was the last time <laughs> <laughs> we uh, spoke. But. I canceled a date a little late, and that was a bad move. Forte, you got a got time to sneak one in here? Well, my plans for tonight got canceled. Uh, not even a big deal. It's uh, my friend's birthday today. Alex, happy birthday. Uh, she texted me yesterday because we had plans. I actually have tomorrow off, so I could stay up a little bit later tonight, so I didn't have to wake up uh, early tomorrow. So I'm off tomorrow. But uh, she texted me yesterday. She's like, hey, listen, my brother... Came into town. <laughs> he lives out of town. Lives in Alberta. Yeah, and uh, she's like, "Yeah, so like I gotta spend time with him." So, uh, so oh, you're working so. tomorrow now, Jeff? Oh no, are you kidding me? <laughs> Get out of here! Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Tell us about your cancellations, either ones that you suffered or perhaps ones that you caused. As you've been hearing in the news, Winnipeg police say 
A pair of protests, or a protest and counter-protest, ended without incident. That was the sound of one group shouting, leave our kids alone, while the other was saying, you know, we're over here, and they could be heard shouting, protect trans kids at time. And, and they gathered in Winnipeg. They gathered in other cities in this province, like Winkler and Brandon. There was Ottawa, Toronto, BC, Calgary, protests, counter-protests right across the country. So you have one group uh, that says it's opposing what it calls sexual orientation and gender identity curriculum in schools. Uh, they've also been pushing for policies enacted in other provinces that require students to get parental consent before teachers can use their preferred first names or pronouns. Uh, that's the push on the one side. And that, of course, led to the counter protest, Greg, uh, people denouncing those policies and, and even denouncing the original protests as anti LGBTQ2+. Yeah, this morning we want to turn the conversation to the effect protests like these can have on our kids. Statistics show one in four LGBTQ2 youth are subject to online bullying. And so we want to talk about how hate and protests and and all of this is working and and how it's even being taught. And so the story comes from out of Alberta about what the curriculum is in that province and the impact all of this noise is having on our teenagers. We get more from Global Sarah Comedina. Alex Marshall spends her time going to rural schools and helps make them safer and welcoming for LGBTQ2 kids. Her intention is not to change anyone's identity. You can't make somebody gay the same way you can't make somebody straight. Seeing a rainbow flag at a school cannot make a straight kid gay. Wednesday rallies were held across the country. People protested the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools, calling it indoctrination. Marshall calls the claims misinformation and worries about the message the protests send to youth. It tells them that, like, hey, there are people around me who do not accept me, who do not want me to be me, who do not want me to be safe. And it can already be hard. Stats Canada has found one in four teens have been cyberbullied. And transgender, non-binary youth and females attracted to other females are at higher risk of being victimized. We don't have good tools for dealing with discomfort. And very often those people deal with their discomfort in a very immature way. And I think this protest is exactly that. Psychologist Ashley Lim says the protests are a cover for discrimination and transphobia, which can be dangerous. We will likely see a rise in um, uh, significant mental health issues, such things like suicidal ideations, suicide, um, uh, uh, depression, anxiety, um, and withdrawal from connection. With the protests came counter-protests, and Lim says those can go a long way. I think the more voices um, that come together to show unity on this topic will eventually will lead the way to, I think, change. As for Marshall, she hopes that kids will focus on the support. That isn't the whole picture. And there's so much more out there that is improving and getting better all the time. Sarah Comedina, Global News. This is, this is just, uh, this is tough when it involves our kids. It's so difficult to see the division within within parental groups and and parental groups and those that that clearly love their kids on both sides of this disagreeing so vehemently like it feels like the discussion around sex education in schools from years ago Mm -hmm. 
right? Like, if the, you talk about sex, we're all going to just go out and have a bunch of sex, right? So, so like, instead of educating people, we're we're, we're now just going to create a bunch of people running around having a whole lot of sex. No, that didn't happen. Right. So, you know, I always think about like STIs and, and talking about pregnancy. Is that uncomfortable? Heck yeah, it's uncomfortable as a parent. And it's so uncomfortable, in fact, that many parents don't have those discussions with their kids. And so their kids end up having those discussions with their friends and their maybe their friends' parents or, or others that they trust in their lives, or they don't have that conversation at all about what does abstinence, birth control, other other forms of conversation around sex education, what does that look like? And I got just got together with uh, a couple summers ago with some friends from junior high school, and the consensus was we sort of raised each other because our parents didn't necessarily have these conversations with us, and the sex education we got in school was was pretty lax. I don't know if you can do this, Brett, but the, it's the first clip in that story that maybe just needs to get played a whole lot more. Um, I don't know if that works, but it was the, the educator saying, you know, like, I can't make, you can't make someone gay any more than you can make them straight. Alex Marshall spends her time going to rural schools and helps make them safer and welcoming for LGBTQ2 kids. Her intention is not to change anyone's identity. You can't make somebody gay the same way you can't make somebody straight. I want to leave it there. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We are asking you at 204-780-6868 about a time that you dealt with cancellation, whether it was something that was canceled that you were looking forward to, or maybe you caused the cancellation. Loren, what does Lisa have to say? When I was in grade seven, my family was planning a trip to Florida for a green Christmas. I had told all my friends at school I would be away for the Christmas banquet, which was a big deal at the time. Sadly, my older siblings decided they didn't want to go to Florida, so our trip got canceled. (laughs) I was too embarrassed to attend our Christmas banquet, but found out the following Monday my classmates classmates had gifted me with a bus ticket to sunny St. James. This was the worst cancellation yet. Oh, man. Yes. Trip to Florida canceled? For a bus ticket, a a 150 (laughs) voucher to get you out to St. James. I came home from Calgary. I was living in Calgary. It would have been the Christmas of 91. I came home for Christmas. I think my mom even paid for my plane ticket. And I got home, my mom, my stepdad, all my siblings were in Mexico for Christmas. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I don't understand. Is this true? It's like 100% they brought, true. They brought you home but weren't yeah. there? And they paid it for a ticket to get you home but not for a ticket to Mexico? No. And I think my mom and stepdad paid for everybody else to go to Mexico. This is the great... This is the... <laughs> You, can we call your stepdad to get him on the line? I'm curious about this. If one of the Mackling siblings is writing in, how was that vacation? Oh, they had a great time. <laughs> and uh, Cheryl's cancellation. This is a double whammy. Cheryl says, I was supposed to go to Dauphin Country Fest this year with a good friend who's had a rough time and was really looking forward to it. We had tickets. Everything was set. But I got sick and ended up having to cancel. And I felt so bad. And then Cheryl followed that up with saying, the year before, I had to come home from it early because I got COVID. So two years in a row, Cheryl got hosed out of Dauphin's Country Fest. Oh. That sucks. That does suck. It's such a good time, too. 
It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We want to continue the discussion on the groups both supporting and opposing policies surrounding LGBTQ2 plus children in schools who met at the Manitoba Legislative Building yesterday, Loren, and getting feedback from both sides, including uh, some pretty important feedback from a teacher. Yeah, and this is just the perspective of how they're feeling as they work to navigate this world right now. And this teacher texted to say, I want to share with you all what I experienced as a teacher yesterday. Imagine walking into school and seeing one third of your class aren't in your class. You know, it's because those families have chosen to boycott going to school. Imagine what it feels like to work with coworkers who are part of the LGBTQ community and visually see how they're not accepted. How do they teach students who don't approve of who they are? Imagine what it feels like to know you have students in your school who identify as trans or gay and they walk into their classroom and half their classmates aren't there. These same students sit in class and listen to lessons on Diwali, Chinese New Year, Eid. Perhaps do not believe in these beliefs, but they sit and listen and learn without judgment. How is it fair to treat people and children this way in such a visual and hurtful way? What do parents think we are teaching? This teacher asks. I can tell you what I teach. Love is love and we accept all people and everyone has a place in my classroom. People need to look at the hurt and damage they're doing to people in the LGBTQ community I lie at night and hope and pray this doesn't lead to suicide. Imagine how the kids, a part of the LGBTQ community, come to school today knowing who boycotted. Tell me how teachers try to navigate that. It's a pretty powerful uh, note. I thank uh, our listener, teacher, for sharing it with us. I don't know. Um, education is such a critical part of our kids' lives. Teachers uh, teach our kids lots of things. They don't learn everything. From teachers, they don't learn everything from school. But I've always trusted the the school system to do their job. I don't always agree with it, and this is not a flippant example. But the new math, I don't get the new math. That's not how I did addition or multiplication. I guess they have a reason for teaching it that way. But as opposed to just yelling and screaming about it, I can go to the teacher and find out what is what's the deal with the new math. I've never been denied a meeting with a teacher or a principal had situations in school over the years where the behavior of other kids was impacting my children's lives in a way that I didn't appreciate. There was a policy not to identify said person, even though we knew who the kid was because our kids told us who it was. And ultimately when we had a meeting with the principal ourselves and to another set of parents, we said, if it's a question of resources for this other kid to get help, we'll have a fundraiser. We'll, we'll get that. We'll get that kid, whatever help they need. We'll, we'll find a way to give that child the attention and the, and the, and, and the care that they need in order to stop, Doing what he was doing, which was impacting every other, every single other kid in the classroom. So I, I've never been denied that access. I've never been denied the knowledge of what's going on in my my uh, my kid's school. So maybe other people have had that experience. That's not ever been my experience. Yeah, with this um, with this protest, I think with the, with a march. I have no doubt, and we're seeing some of it in our text line today. Some of it is is just bigotry or maybe religious-related 
but uh, you know, I have no doubt as well that a lot of the people in that, in this particular movement, they are doing it out of a place of care. But but I, but I, what I'm picking up from what you just said is, if you don't understand what's happening, then look into it. And I think fear of the unknown is maybe what a lot of this or what's happening for a lot of the, those involved here, rather than looking into it and trying to understand it. They don't quite understand it. They fear it. And then these, these things build up. And my, my fear is this is only going to become more divisive. Mm-hmm. Loren, are yeah. schools have, have schools become a place where <laughs> parents are excluded? I know I used to not, volu- not, I no. used to volunteer at my kids' school all the time. I knew all the kids. Yeah. I knew all the parents. I used to teach all the kids about how to shake hands and make eye contact and and to just you know that was sort of my thing. Mr. Mackling would teach you how to to do a do a proper <laughs> handshake. You sound like my dad. That used to be his thing. You know, take a make eye contact. Make sure you do it like this. But not you know, it's not my experience. Like I, you know, our kids are in a wonderful school. I, I their teachers have been amazing. Right da- right to the secretary who who knows me my by name maybe for the wrong reasons because I'm the forgetful mom but you know I I don't feel like I've been excluded in any way but I haven't had to navigate some of these issues right and so perhaps people's experiences are differently the hard part is is that we're talking about teaching and educating our kids so that we grow up to be better people and perhaps there's a lot of us you know parents who need to have some of that education. Is, is that all that it is? You know, like the more we learn, the better we're supposed to be. And I, I don't know, I don't know how we get there because we're certainly not there right now. Brett, to your point, it, it feels like I, I'm catching my breath right now when I hear these protests happening because the increased possibility of more divisiveness takes me back to a place of a few years ago. And I hated that time, you know, when, mm-hmm. and I'm speaking of COVID and lockdowns, that feeling like I feel, I feel genuine pit in my stomach nerves. And we'll leave, leave it with Robin weighing in at 204-780-6868, who says, I saw something on social media yesterday from a teacher that read, if I could indoctrinate your children, they would all wear deodorant and no one would be on their phones during class. If this is what, if, if what <laughs> some people are saying are happening in schools, indoctrination and grooming and all these things, that, that, that's beyond a transgression. That's beyond a, a hole or, a, or a, a vacuum in the system. That, that's pure evil. And if that's happening, if that's actually happening, we need to know about that. I'll agree with you on that front. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It is a big day here at 680 CJOB as we head out to Kildonan Place from 12 until 6.30 to join our friends at Silo Mission for Knickers and Kickers, sponsored by Chud's Power Sports. And we're joined now to learn more about this with communication specialist for Silo Mission, Luke Thiessen. Luke, good morning to you. Good morning. So, Knickers and Kickers, for those who are perhaps unfamiliar with this event, what do you need today? Today we are collecting uh, our our knickers, uh, underwear, and kickers, uh, socks, and this year, uh, shoes um, to help uh, stock our shelves as we head into the cooler weather. Okay, shoes and and boots, that's sort of a, a new thing. I think, Luke, I've been involved in this as a volunteer for several years now, talk about that aspect of it and how people can help. Do they have to be brand new shoes or boots? 
Uh, no. So normally with the socks and underwear is what we've been collecting at this event. Uh, those do have to be brand new, but for shoes, they can be gently used. They can, as long as they're in good condition that someone can still get some life out of them. Um, we will take your men's and women's uh, used uh, shoes, boots, um, anything that would be seasonally appropriate for the fall. Asylum offers so many services, Luke, and you know, you can, you can have your teeth done eventually. There's shower services, food services, clothing, like we're talking about now with knickers and kickers and boots. I was interested to read in your flyer, I think it was last month, about how you even have someone there who tries to help the homeless with foot care. And like this light bulb went off in my head where I thought, of course, you're spending all that time outside, maybe on your feet, walking around, and, and the, the feet can really, uh, be impacted by that. Can you tell me a bit about that program and the need for the shoes and boots, Luke? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's part of our Salisbury Health Center. We have volunteer healthcare professionals uh, from a bunch of different disciplines come in and offer their services for free on a volunteer basis. One of those is foot care. And yeah, foot health is a, a really big issue among those experiencing homelessness. Um, spending so much time on your feet, uh, you know, uh, and especially not being able to care for them properly or you know, if you're spending a few days at a time in, in wet socks, dirty socks, or, or in, inappropriate footwear, uh, people will tend to get blisters, will tend to get broken skin, uh, can lead to infections, can lead to, um, you know, a, a host of different problems. And all of those can be exacerbated by things like diabetes and other foot problems, which are unfortunately uh, far overrepresented among those experiencing homelessness. And Luke, one of the things that I like so much about this particular event is it's a reminder of something that we might not even ever think about, right? Because, uh, for example, it might rain today, right when I will be walking home from work. And if I get caught in rain, if I get caught in pouring rain, that's going to suck for a few minutes. But then I get home and I can change into fresh clothes and fresh underwear. And so, like, for, for many in our community, they don't have that option. Exactly. Yeah. Just imagine um, that, you know, you get caught in the rain, you step in a puddle, you get your shoes and socks wet. And um, instead of being able to go home and change them, take them off, dry off, have a shower, etc. Uh, you just don't have that option. And, uh, and imagine the problems that would lead to day after day. Um, so being able to hand someone a, a fresh pair of socks when they come in the door at Silo Mission, being able to help them replace their footwear um, if it's worn out, if they've got holes in it, uh, to give them a new pair of underwear uh, when they come to us for a shower. Uh, these things are part of dignity. They're part of health. They're part of self-esteem. Uh, just being able to care for someone and make them feel like a human being again. Luke, could that be the difference, you know, depending on the day between someone maybe feeling confident enough to maybe take their their journey in a, in a sharply different direction? Or maybe that's the day they have a, a job interview and they, and they've been working through some stuff. Uh, I, I think I've shared this on the air before. I, once upon a time, my mom used to iron my underwear, and I got to tell you, nothing <laughs> felt better than putting on that underwear. And I'm a little bit of an underwear snob now, but let me tell you, it sets the tone for the day. I, I, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, flippant about it, but the, there's Brett made a great point. Not everybody has that that option. Well, you know, that's that's a funny mental image, but it's absolutely true. I think being able to start the day with, with those basics in place that you feel like a, you know, quote unquote, normal person, that you're comfortable, confident, um, not having the distractions um, or potentially distress of, of extreme discomfort, of feeling unhealthy, of feeling gross, um, 
it's just a, a huge part of, like I said, dignity and mental health and being able to address and move forward to the next step, to the next goals, to the next uh, uh, things to go about your day. Uh, it, it's just a big part of your overall health and well-being, and, uh, and it starts with uh, getting dressed in the morning with some nice, clean, fresh clothes. Luke, before we let you go, you know, you just referenced mental health there. And, and that's one of our big topics today as we talk to all the different provincial, the three provincial leaders. What do you see in the homeless community when it comes to the needs for supports for mental health? I think this might be a loaded question as it comes out of my mouth, Luke, but I'm, I'm imagining that need is also great. Yeah, mental health is uh, important and, and potentially complicated for everybody. But in the homeless population, um, I, I think it's something that we try to address on all angles from, you know, giving people uh, what they need to feel their best to, you know, professional treatment of complex needs, um, housing situations where they can be supported uh, with whatever they might be living with. If it's something complicated like schizophrenia or if it's just depression and, and needing some kind of counseling, uh, there's so many different needs. And, and most of those things are overrepresented in uh, the population experiencing homelessness. A, a stat that I think surprises a lot of people is um, depending on where you look, but uh, most of the stats will show that uh, about half of everyone experiencing homelessness is living with a traumatic brain injury, which may have uh, happened before they became homeless or after. But it's that leads to a lot of complex mental health uh, challenges. So it is a hugely important situation and, and, and thing to be thinking about. Well, Luke, thank you for joining us today to give, give us some things to think about as we get ready for Knickers and Kickers. We appreciate your time and we'll see you in a couple hours. Yeah, thanks so much. Luke Thiessen, communication specialist with Silo Mission. Again, Knickers and Kickers at Kildonan Place from 12 p.m. to 6.30 p.m., sponsored by Chud's Power Sports. Loren's going to be there at noon. I'll be there at 1. Greg's there at 2. Hal's there at 3. Kelly's there at 4. And by the way, while you're there, any in-person delivery, we're going to enter you into a draw to win a pair of tickets to see the Jonas Brothers this November at Canada Life Centre. And you can get more information at cjob.com and you can search through the Amazon wish list that Siloam has. If you can't help out, can't get down there in person, that's a way you can help out as well as we work to bring... Comfort, dignity, health to those who need it most. Right now, we've been talking this morning about mental health and the promises that our political leaders are making on the campaign trail when it comes to their plans to address the massive shortfalls in support. We've been getting all sorts of feedback on your experiences with the mental health system, like this listener who says... My son was diagnosed with bipolar when he was 21. The lack of resources and supports for people with mental illness is, to say the least, so, so discouraging. We are in a mental health crisis and this can no longer be ignored because it affects everyone. I am a 30 plus year teacher in an early years classroom and I've never seen so many children with serious mental health issues as I do now. And there's nothing I can do about it because there's a dire lack of resources. All I can do, though, is love them and care for them and try to make them feel safe and that they belong in my classroom. We need to do something now. We know now more than ever (laughs) about mental health and the resources to help the people in our lives that need the resources have maybe never been more scarce. Dougal DeMont is the leader of the Liberal Party of Manitoba, joining us now. Dougal, good morning, friend. Good morning. How are you? We're doing well. Uh, this is a, a topic close to all of our hearts here uh, on yep. the start here. We appreciate that there are many needs in our province, but if there's one thing that you could do 
your party could do to re- reduce the weight for life-saving care for someone in the midst of a mental health crisis, what would that one thing be? Well, look, I mean, also one of the things we've said is that we need to make mental health care part of Medicare. Like it isn't. We we don't actually have a mental health system in Manitoba to speak of uh, because there is nothing there for so many people. So uh, if you're in the middle of a mental health crisis, we need to make sure that we have mental health ERs. But we have a colossal shortage of psychologists. Uh, so look, in our in our platform. We have an entire plan for expanding the department at the University of Manitoba to make sure that we're training more people up. Uh, but the key thing is, you know, Bell says, let's talk, but who are you going to talk to if you have to spend 175 bucks or 200 bucks an hour or half an hour to talk to a psychologist? So we know that if we can provide more psychologists and make sure that people can get mental health care early, they don't end up in crisis later on. You can prevent people taking meds. Um, this is where we need to go. This is, and look, the provincial government had a, there's a $400 million uh, federal fund, half of which was supposed to go to mental health care. And I don't know where it is. We do not have a mental health system in this province and we desperately need to build one by training psychologists, psych nurses, and making sure that people can get the care they need for free. What would that cost? Um, it's actually, look, Part of it is that it's, I think it's about $150 million. It's actually not as much as you think, because one of the things is everyone's trying to provide mental health care. There are a bunch of people like family doctors right now who are providing mental health care who aren't actually trained for it, and they're billing for it at a higher rate than a psychologist would. But the other thing is what we've heard over and over, like we talk about a mental health crisis, and then people say, well, what it's going to cost? Well, what's the cost of not treating it? It's astronomical. We know that for every dollar we put in, we can save two. So that is, and, and we can save lives. So like, this is one of these things where we need to be putting, the money is there, quite honestly. It's just not being applied. Um, but we have to put it into training. We have to put it into addressing the shortages. But look, the, the difference it would make in people's lives. I, I've talked with families. You know, I talked with a mother on EIA. Her, her children had been abused. They're, she's having to try to spend, find $800 a month. To, to pay personally for their mental health care. The difference it would make in her life would be absolutely colossal. And again, especially for young people, if you can get people talk therapy early, the difference it makes, it keeps people out of ERs. It keeps, and it allows people to catch problems early before they spiral. So you prevent addictions, you prevent mental health crises. That's where we need to be going. But every, we're always just running around and, from fire to fire to fire in this province because all of our systems are in crisis. And so we have an expensive system that doesn't work instead of a system that functions properly and actually delivers care the care we need. Well, I want to talk about addressing the needs in schools in a moment, Dougal, because I think sure. getting early is important. But, but, but first, we need the people. We need the psychologists. Yep. We need the psychiatrists. Shared Health says for psychologists alone, the vacancy rate is at 22%. It's 21% or around there for psychiatrists. I mean, the need, yep. we get it. There's huge gaps. You talk about the training and the need to, to open up more at the U of M. How quickly do you think you could get that done? Because if, if, if it is a crisis, we're talking a need of tens to hundreds of well-trained no, no, professionals. Okay, so how many and how quickly then, Dougal? Um, well, we look... It, 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 you can't wave a magic wand, but there are two things you can do. One, 
uh, is we can one is expanding like I said, expanding the psychology department. It's an excellent psychology department. The other is there's a program where you, which they've done in the UK, which we're following, which is you go and train somebody who already has a master's degree. Let's say they have a master's degree in social work, but they don't understand, but they don't have the extra uh, degree in, in mental health or the extra training in mental health. We can take a whole bunch of people who have master's and at least give them a basic level of mental health care, uh, which look, and you know, if you have a master's or your master's of education, if you have a master's, it's so we can actually have networks of people who have better training in mental health care. That's absolutely critical. And it can happen across the province that it, that's how it's done. Um, so part of that, that can quickly expand the number of people who can actually provide mental health care. The other is to bring in a new program, like to become a PhD psychologist, it takes 10 years. There's another program. It's five years called a PsyD. It's basically the same thing. We could cut that waiting time in half So uh, to, for, for folks. But the other thing about it, there's two different parts to it. One is making sure that we have those people, but the other is, uh, and, and that the system can fulfill it, but the other is that we, if we reduce those costs immediately, yes, there will be sort of a log jam to deal with it, but it also means that we can bring more people and psychologists into the system because they know they'll be paid. I know Loren wants to ask about the school system, but we're going to be talking about the homeless crisis today, our Knickers and yeah. Kickers initiative today. Homelessness, we had uh, we, we had um, Silo Mission tell us this morning, Luke Deason referenced TBI, traumatic brain injury, homelessness. Yeah. And of course, then you get into uh, depression, mental health issues, and the correlation to addictions. So how do we connect all these? How does our awareness um, impact our ability to sort of see things a lot more clearly, if that makes sense, Dougal? Well, look, the thing is, this is another crisis because we refuse to deal with it, right? Um, We keep on treating homelessness as if it's something temporary. Right. We have police because we know there's always going to be crime. We have firefighters because we know there's always going to be fires. We have to accept that there's always a risk of poverty and homelessness for people who have had brain injuries, who are mentally, who have mental health issues, um, because they can't work. They cannot. They, it, so we have to make sure that they're supported. So we've proposed same-day housing. It would take two years to set up, but within two years, you'd be able to make sure that everybody who needs housing can get it within a day instead of people spending time in shelters and it's supported so the bell hotel on main street is actually a good example they take they take people right off the street with with serious challenges but there's a nurse on site and they actually help them get through their recovery get back on their feet and if you have that housing trans whether they call it transitional housing with supports where people are able to get better and especially if they've got addictions as long as it takes for them to dry out, not say, well, we're going to spend 20000 or $30,000 for a month or 28 days that isn't going to work. That's what we need to be focusing on is making sure that we're, we have long-term solutions instead of Band-Aids because we've been, that's the problem. We keep building bigger and bigger sort of gyms with mats on the floor for, for people with mental health and, and addictions. And again, people say, well, how much is this going to cost? And it, it, it's, this is a situation where, First, it will save lives and it will save money in, in the healthcare and save money in policing. And, and, and you can actually take from those budgets, right, and, and help pay for those services. It, it, we're, we're spending huge amounts of money, again, in crisis and emergency services that we could be spending 
keeping people safe in the first place, and we're not. So that's a big part of our plan. You know, I'm, I, often when we talk health, we have we have timelines, right? We we talk about wait times, diagnostic wait times, how long it takes to get the surgery, how long it takes to get uh, this service yep. or that. And so, let's talk about wait times for for not just mental health services, but for addictions treatments. It can take yep. months to receive that here in Manitoba. Do you have a, a, a timeline in which you think that should be re- reduced to? If I'm someone who puts up my hand and says I want to enter treatment program for this or that. How long? I mean, obviously, I would like to wait no days, but what's right, reasonable for you and, and how would... Goal. Right, but so how, let's start so, with how you'd make that happen. So we would have a... They, we would do what they do in Alberta, is you have a 24-7 referral line, and it can be a phone, text, and look, if somebody walks into a doctor's clinic or they walk into somewhere, someone can make that call or make that text, and you can get a referral right away. Because what we're hearing is that people are presenting, and then somebody says, okay, well, if you go to the hospital tomorrow... Go to the hospital tomorrow morning, get a note, a referral, and then come. Then you can come back. And that's not working. So we need immediate referrals. And we heard the same thing at Main Street. Even if you just had a single psychiatric nurse or a psych uh, on site at Main Street, you'd have somebody there who could, or um, a nurse practitioner who could refer to somebody right away. But we don't actually have the medical personnel on site. The other would be to have a RAM clinic that's basically like a 24-7, a 24-7 RAM clinic that would work like that, or a mental health addictions type ER, that would work, and it would be specifically for that. Because we don't, like I said, we don't have a mental health system, and we don't have an addiction system. There, this, this spring, the PCs brought forward a bill to try to regulate addictions. It wasn't perfect, but the, in, the, in the NDP held it up, we have no standards at all for running addictions treatment in Manitoba. There are more rules about how to treat, it says safely care for barnyard animals, and I'm not joking, for cows, pigs, and chickens than we do for human beings with addictions. Because no one, no government in the history of this province has ever seen fit to pass a law to say, these are some basic medical standards you need before you set up shop as an addictions treatment facility. So, look, we could all start one today if we wanted in our garage, and no one would be able to do anything about it. That is complete madness. This is, this is why we have the crisis we do, because no government in the history of Manitoba has ever bothered to even set up standards to look after people with addictions. So there are no standards in Manitoba, and that's what we need to bring in. And we have to make sure that those standards are there and that there are sort of all sorts of folks doing great work, but it's all about the crisis. It's all about putting out a five alarm fire instead of trying to, you know, as we put it, put in sprinkler systems to protect people in the first place. Dougal, we're going to have to leave it there, but we appreciate the time. Dougal Lamont, leader of the Liberal Party, joining us live on 680 CJOB. And we will also hear on this from Wab Canoe and Heather Stephenson. Wab will be uh- on with Jim. Bob is on with Jim, and I'm sorry, that was my mistake when I referenced uh, what the Tories were doing this morning. Uh, Brett, uh, Richard Cloutier tells me that Heather is not available to come on their show this afternoon, so they're going to be speaking with uh, MLA Janice Morley Lecomte at 4.35. Reminder, knickers and kickers today, Silo Mission. We're asking you to make donations of new Underwear and socks it's at 12 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. at Kildonan Place. And this is a team event, 680 CJOB, Global Winnipeg, Power 97, and Peggy at 99.1 will be there uh, live on location uh, to 
be there to greet you and accept your donations. And a reminder, we also have tickets to give away for Christmas with the Tenors at December 1st, Club Region Event Center, asking you about cancellations, like Shane, who says, nothing worse than a boss canceling a meeting that they, they scheduled two minutes after it started. Mm. That would, that would it, not, I'd lose my mind. If they like say we had a meeting scheduled for noon, you know, when we're gone by then, mm-hmm. we'll wait around for the meeting and then mm-hmm. oh, canceled. That, that never happened in real life. <laughs> I, the nice it, part now, I mean, the nice, I, I don't love Teams meetings, but, you know, like you can be on a walk and tune in and yeah. if they cancel, they cancel. That at least, you know, frees up some space there, right? For sure. Yeah. The virtual meeting has actually helped with that kind of stuff uh, because I have been walking home sometimes and, uh, like there's nothing I, I'm like, well, I, I can't, I can't make it home in time, but I got to get out of work. So I'll do it on the way home. There At you. least you can't hear you. Like <laughs> there's always one on every call. Like, <sighs> I did that once. <laughs> I did that once. Um, <sighs> Car noises. and all <laughs> I did that once. Um, and we'll, we want to get into something serious about sport and school here in a moment, but just very quickly, <laughs> I was getting in my car just as the meeting started. And I was like, mumbling and grumbling to myself. Like, lucky you didn't say anything incriminating. <laughs> and then someone said, is somebody driving? I'm like, oh, well, that's me. Mute. So, yeah. I got myself in some big trouble there. <laughs> Imagine Michael Scott in the era of remote work and oh, Teams meetings. They anyway. need to bring back the office just for that, just to explore that storyline. Oh, alone. man. They should do, fabulous. They should just do like a, like a quick six-minute like uh, short, bit, short, yeah. yeah, like a reunion short on that exact topic. You have connections. You're a coach potato. Pitch that. Okay, I'll get on the phone with Steve Carell right away and uh, see if he's up for that. There you go. But uh, we want to continue the discussion here on the protests and the counter protests, which happened yesterday, which has ignited quite, uh, I would say, a firestorm of uh, divisive conversation and discussion. Yeah, and Mike texted with a thoughtful comment about wondering what's going on here. Mike says, I wonder how many of the protesters yesterday really have a firm grasp on what is being made available in schools. It seems to me a lot of the rhetoric is brought forward from social media and the echo chambers contained within. I would also like to hear from teachers as to exactly what is being taught. If it is just resources that are being made available for kids with concerns, then is that really a bad thing? I guess many would maybe like to ban National Geographic magazines or other things like that, says Mike. But his point being is is a good one. And we're working to bring that to our airwaves today because if there are people out there with legitimate concerns, and clearly the protests show that they, there are, and there's also, you know, those, as with any protest, the, the extreme concerns that maybe don't add up. What is being taught in schools? If you're a teacher out there, 780 Share with us the sort of in grade one, we start with body parts in grade two, you know, we go here and there and, and what happens in grade six and seven, what is actually being said? Because I worry to the point of about social media, people have texted this morning saying, I heard that in this school, the teacher did this and it's possible that's true. Or it's also possible that, that, that it's just been sort of this false narrative that goes around. So what actually is in the curriculum when it comes to all these issues of orientation and gender and pronouns and all the rest? I, I know for me, Greg, I don't know about you, but when the kids got to health units in their school, the teacher would write every single year. Just so you know, starting tomorrow in health, we are going to be discussing the following. You know, it, it wouldn't be the whole thing, but it'd be a gen- general idea. So if you have any questions, concerns, call me, email me. 
but this is what's going to happen. And then the next day, you might get a follow-up note. We talked about it in school. Yeah, we learned it A, B, and C. And the kids, there was a lot of giggling, you know, because it would be body parts or words or that kind of stuff. And we had that open dialogue. But I, I don't know. It'd be nice if, if people are worried what actually about the teachers do, you know, in this word indoctrination, what actually is being taught? Let's find out. We always got the heads up of what was going to be in that unit and other units, quite frankly. And uh, you mentioned the giggling and, and otherwise it just shows that, you know, kids are uncomfortable potentially with this topic. Uh, but I think they get pretty comfortable with it very quickly because some of the reports I got back <laughs> from my kids about the questions that were being asked uh, indicated that the kids had a lot of things at their disposal, a lot well, of I things that they were seeing in on social media. And just remember, the internet, they can look at and see everything and anything in most cases. And so to be able to combat some of the negative things that they see with regards to what a healthy relationship is, what a uh, healthy sexual relationship is, is, is absolutely critical. I can remember having this conversation, Brett, on our oft afternoon show seven years ago with an expert who said, if you don't, it might've been Dr. Abdul Rahman who said, if, if you aren't the first person that is discussing sex as the example with your kids, guess what? Their first impression is their strongest impression. Mm -hmm. So do you want it to be pornography? Do you want it to be what uh, Jimmy down the street teaches your kid? Or do you want it to be from what you an want expert? Or, yeah. Or, 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 or yeah, or you and get out ahead of it. Because uh, let's be honest, for a lot of us, we're, we're maybe uh, 12, 18, 24 months behind the conversation of when we should have been having it. It's like, oh, yeah, I know all that stuff already. Mm -hmm. I just want the, the giggling in the school was to do with body parts. I think that of course. Kids, people of any age, of, of <laughs> you course. put a picture on a wall, you might be like, oh, boy, here we go. Yeah. This is happening. But I, I just think that that's a great point about if you if you don't think it's being learned somewhere. Just because wrong. it's not being taught doesn't mean it's not being learned. Mm hmm. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We are asking you today about cancellations. Have you ever had something canceled and it really made you sad or angry? Or maybe you're the culprit who canceled something, like when I had to cancel a date and incited the wrath of the woman I was supposed to go out with, uh, with whom I never, did not go out with ever again after that. But um, if you missed that story, I told it at about 6.54. <laughs> you can find it in the audio vault. Greg, why don't we start with you? One of your pals uh, texted you about one of our pals down the hall. Yeah, I, I didn't remember this. Late 1980s, pranked one of our common friends from, from my buddy on, on my uh, phone by getting Tom McGoran, who is now morning man, down the hall. What did you call it this morning? Radio Alley? Radio Alley, uh, that's right. <laughs> From Peggy at 99.1. Tom was working at, at a different radio station at the time. He pretended to cancel our friend's hotel reservation when he was going skiing in Banff for a week. Our friend, I'll use his name because he doesn't live here anymore. Tony absolutely lost it and his temper was on full display. Laughed about it afterwards. And I asked 
my pal, like, was this on air? He says, yeah, McGoran phoned Tony pretending to be the hotel manager and told him his <laughs> reservation had to be canceled because they overbooked the hotel. Went on for a couple of minutes of just getting Tony madder and madder before re- revealing it was just a prank. Oh, Great victim. Great victim. Did he get a prize? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I forgot Jeez. to ask Tom. I just asked him if he remembered. Oh, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this, uh, once again, another difficult decision today with picking our winner, uh, because for example, Loren, do you see Jeff here? I would say this is, uh, he uses the word ultimate. This is the ultimate runner up. Oh boy. This occurred 12 years ago, says Jeff. It was a beautiful day and a dear friend was to get married in front of 300 guests. Family and friends had come together from around the world to partake and celebrate their special day. Just hours before the ceremony, the bride uncovered the groom and groomsmen had engaged in drugs and infidelity with ladies of the night the prior <laughs> evening. The devastated what does that bride, all mean? you know what it means. The devastated bride made the wrenching decision and announced the cancellation of the wedding and termination of the relationship. It was awful for all involved. Imagine a sea of unopened gifts, wilting flowers, and the pain of unfulfilled dreams, punctuated by the harsh reality of the groom's troubling and idiotic behavior. The absolute worst cancellation I have ever been a part of. Oh, that's gut wrenching. That is straight out of like a movie scene. Yes, and the prose in Jeff's text was yes. wonderful. Thank wonderful. you for that, Jeff. That, that making this decision tough, but our winner is Cheryl. For what turned out to be a triple whammy, Cheryl says, I was supposed to go to Dauphin Country Fest this year with a good friend who has had a rough time and was really looking forward to it. We had the tickets, everything was set, but I got sick and ended up having to cancel and I felt so bad. So when I asked, was that this year? Cheryl said, yes, it was. So disappointing because the year before I had to come home from Country Fest because I got COVID. So I said, come on. And then she says, and uh, the COVID one, I also had to then cancel my trip with my daughter to Alberta to visit my son. Double come on, triple whammy. That sucks. That is brutal. So Cheryl is our winner today. Christmas with the Tenors, December 1st, Club Region Event Center. There is a pre-sale on right now. If you want to get in on that, the, the password is holiday through Ticketmaster, and the tickets go on sale tomorrow at if Ticketmaster. This- if this gets canceled, Cheryl's never speaking to us again. <laughs> like, you know, we like we targeted her. We could cry. Have tickets dude. for this. Be on high alert. Cheryl is involved. Cheryl's involved. She might have a string of bad luck we want to <laughs> warn you about. This Saturday night. One of the coolest events of the year is taking place that will bring the city to life with explosive color and vibrancy. I still remember the just everything I saw on social media. It was like I was looking at another planet. It's just so cool. It's called Nuit Blanche, and it's part of Culture Days, which begins tomorrow and runs to October 15th. And it comes with an exciting new partnership with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. So Kurt Tittlemeyer is the general manager of Nuit Blanche in Winnipeg and joins us now. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. And just quickly for those, not quickly, take as long as you want, but for those who don't know, Kurt, what is Nuit Blanche? Nuit Blanche is a one-time celebration each year. It's a nighttime celebration that explores contemporary art. And all our events are free and they take place in four zones. So those zones are downtown, the Forks, St. Boniface, and the Exchange District. 
All right, Kurt. Last year, I thought this was a prime example of people. We talk about and malign our downtown for for not having enough things to do and and for it being sort of a, a black hole at times. But there are events every year that totally flip that narrative on its ear. And this one is right at the top of the list because it just proves to me that if you give people a reason to come downtown, something to do, something to celebrate, people will come. How many people did you have last year? And are you expecting more people this year? Give me some stats, brother. Sure, sure. Last year, when we combined all the events together and talking to our partners and venues, we estimate 30,000 people came downtown between 6 p.m. and midnight last year. So we, we do take pride that Winnipeg looks great downtown when it's full of culture enthusiasts, when people are walking around, when they're not driving, they're, maybe they're on their bike, or they're, we place our installations so they're all in walking distance. So we really champion that, that downtown is beautiful. And there's a lot to do, especially when there's arts and culture. Um, and then for this year, it's hard to, because we don't sell tickets, it's not always easy to participate. It. it is weather dependent. It's looking good, knock on wood right now for Saturday. So I would say the same attendance as last year. So what kind I, I, you don't have to go through the, the entire list, but can you just give us some examples of the kind of stuff that people will see? Like I described, you know, there are some things I saw last year that just blew my mind with the colors and lights and all that stuff. I mean, I, I, I am easily amused, but this was next level stuff. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to highlight a few things. Um, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, they are joining us for the first time. They're opening their doors for Nuit Blanche. We have a major installation called Synopsis at the group entrance. Uh, that's by uh, artist, Canadian artist Carolyn Monet. That piece actually premiered in Nuit Blanche Toronto last year and it's being reconfigured for our Nuit Blanche. It's a huge piece right at the foot of the door of the CMHR. Uh, we also have right next to there, we have two great premieres by Indigenous artist Casey Coisin. He has two projections that are interactive at the Forks. We have a really cool piece in Stephen Juba Park. This is all in walking distance. It's called uh, Kukum's Lounge by artist Jamie Isaac. It's an illuminated teepee. You can go in the teepee. You can take some time and kind of enjoy that space. And then we have several street parties. The WAG is throwing a huge street party in St. Mary's that's completely free. They have performances. They have new installations, projections, food and drink and mocktails and cocktails, all that stuff. So there's lots to go and see. You know, I was uh, downtown for, I can't, I think I might have had tickets to the ballet or something a few years ago, and I had my kids with me, and I got in the car, and I was like, oh, man, at the end of the night, this is the Nuit Blanche night, and we drove around and then walked around, and they thought it was so cool just to see all the people, but the lights and all the rest, and it reminded me, like, you know, you, I think too often when we hear a word like, and I'm, you know, installation, or even just basic art, you think that's not for me because that's not my personality. And you quickly discover how wrong you are. So when you, when you talk about just appealing to the masses in so many ways, is it fair to say that it also draws people out that you that might have said, I wouldn't have expected to have liked this so much? Absolutely, yes. And we're very proud of that. So Nuit Blanche is run by Culture Days Manitoba, which is a three-week celebration, as you guys mentioned, and really the mandate of our organization is to give accessibility to the arts. So people that love the arts, but also people that maybe they don't know what it's like to participate, or sometimes people think it's not for them. But we find when they come, when the doors are free and people are very welcoming, that people have a great time. And then throughout the year, they visit those cultural institutions more. So that's kind of what our game plan is. (laughs) Now, in your estimation, um, 
like sometimes people say, um, they, why is there funding for the arts? You know, we should put that money into something else. Why do you think art is so important? Oh, that's that's a, such a big question. But I mean, firstly, I'd kind of put my general manager hat on and say every dollar that you put into the arts, you get a huge return. You only have to look at our film industry and so many industries, tourism industry, and how it generates revenue when that money goes there. But putting on my cultural enthusiast hat, I feel that it really is, it defines a community, right? And I feel that Winnipeg has such an amazing art scene. I've heard that from so many people that we can do this at a world-class level, and we do, and I think it's part of our identity. So let's talk about an exciting return happening at the Forks tomorrow. Tell us about that. Sure. The Forks has uh, several events. I'm going to start, actually, they have a Nibonge Kids Zone at the Children's Museum, which is a fantastic event. So that's free between 6 and 8.30. You can bring your kids down there. They have some workshops for graffiti gallery and also some new exhibits there. So if you want to do that, you can then at 8.30, if your kids are old enough, you can walk through some of the installations in the Forks too. So we have those two premieres by Casey Coisin. Uh, these are really unique works. It's on the Forks and the Nuit Blanche Instagram right now, if you want a preview. Uh, and he's a really interesting artist. One of them, he's created these figures made out of these objects. It's just something out of this world that you would only see there, that only Casey can create. And uh, we also have uh, Manitoba Opera is going to be working with Parks Canada, and they'll be doing uh, short premieres of their new opera that's premiering later this year uh, called La Cures. And of course, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights has uh, live music in Bueller Hall that's sponsored by Manitoba Music and Canadian Museum for Human Rights. They have six stellar indie acts all performing in Bueller Hall. As they play, we have a projectionist named Julie Guinjon. She's come up with some beautiful video. So the artists will play with uh, projections on them in Bueller Hall. That's all completely free between 6 p.m. and midnight at CMHR. When I was first introduced to Nuit Blanche, I think I was living in Toronto at the time, and they put on a really incredible show as well, Kurt. And I'm not trying to make this a competition, but, you know, we talk about different festivals that we post and how, how we do so well as a city. How does Winnipeg's Nuit Blanche compare to how other markets might do it in terms of just size, scope, attendance? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm careful when I say these things, but I feel that we have the largest one in Western Canada. I don't know of a larger one. I know that there were some, I'm not going to say the cities, but I know there were some other cities that over the last 10 years, they had substantial ones that have either disbanded or they've really shrunk. Uh, there are some other great ones in Western Canada. I'm not saying that we're the only great one, but I think that we're the largest now. I mean, Toronto has a massive one. Um, but, you know, I was reading that Toronto has 80 events this year. Winnipeg has 85 right now. <laughs> so, and at a lot of our events, instead of being, you know, these all these huge funded pieces, they're community events, too, and we're very, very, very proud of that. Like, we have so many great little galleries, artists, organizations, clubs that put on these great events for Nuit Blanche, too. And I think that's what kind of makes the night unique. And Nuit Blanche part of Culture Days Manitoba. So it's not just in Winnipeg, right? It's province-wide. Yeah, we have, we have some great events province-wide. Uh, we use Nuit Blanche to kick off our festival, but then there's, you know, three weeks of festival after that. So I recommend people looking at our Culture Days uh, .ca forward slash MB and check out all of our events. We have over 250 events in Manitoba, lots of them in rural areas. I'd like to highlight uh, Morden has a huge Culture Days event this year. Uh, Dauphin has an amazing one as well. Flin Flon always does a, a substantial um, 
culture days for us. And I also want to mention the PAW because those events are absolutely great. And those communities all kind of celebrate culture days in their own unique way. Kurt Tittlemeyer, General Manager of Nuit Blanche, Winnipeg, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Kurt. Looking forward to this. Thanks for having me, guys. That website, once again, for more information, culturedays.ca slash MB. As we get ready for Nuit Blanche on Saturday night, and then Culture Days for the next three weeks. And also, by the way, should mention this before we forget, we're going to be live on location tomorrow morning. GMAC, where are we going? We're going to, uh, we're going to training camp. Hockey oh, yeah? for All Center, way out in, uh, I, don't, I don't know, is that officially in Headingley? I think it's out of town. I think we're heading out. We're leaving the perimeter, baby. We're leaving the perimeter. <laughs> so it's a road trip. It's about seven inches uh, west of the perimeter, but it's out of Does the perimeter. Does not matter, Loren. We're strapping on the skates. This is this. This will be the third longest uh, trip I've taken this summer. So. Yeah, do you think they let me uh, test the hardest shot? You know, one of those things. Oh, I'm bring my skates tomorrow just in case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just yeah. We could just say sorry. We had this wrong. We thought we were joining uh, the team on it. I got an email. You know, I signed something. I'm sure, I got an email here that says you wanted to see me play. <laughs> Oldest rookie in the history of the NHL, <laughs> something like that. Did I, did, was there nuance there that I missed?